I think it's important to define what successes are. Um, I've learned more from failures by far. I think anybody that's uh, played sports can identify with the notion of being on a losing team and trying harder and looking just more intensely at what you're doing every day and how you're going about your your preparation and your execution and trying to figure out why you're not winning and, and working harder to win. And I think that's a valuable experience. So that's a longer version of, you know, failures at down payment on success, but it's true. Welcome to the Level Up podcast. I'm John Robinson, host and creator of Level Up, the podcast for professionals. The goal of Level Up is that you listen to each episode and walk away with one to two key learnings that you can apply to your own career. In this episode of Level Up, we hear from David Bloom. David is currently the co-founder and president of Plunk, a Seattle-based startup bringing AI and machine learning to the world's largest asset class, which is residential real estate. Plunk revolutionizes the way that homeowners, real estate professionals, and investors value and invest in residential real estate. In this episode, we talk about David's past 39 years in starting and growing technology companies in a variety of founder, director, and senior operational roles. David has been involved in over 20 startups and achieved a high water equity value of over $36 billion, including two IPOs and 10 company acquisitions. David, welcome to Level Up. Thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here with you, John. If everyone that I know, I don't think I know anyone else that started more companies and had more successful exits as you. So I want to actually start with going back to the very beginning. Maybe we go back to your childhood and we could talk a little bit about where you can remember where you got your entrepreneurial spark. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a different era. My dad worked at Boeing for 38 years and I saw several decision points, he had to leave that scenario and go more entrepreneurial. And he never had the, the courage or the momentum to break free from that. And of course it worked for him, but I think that uh, left an impression on me. And so I swung wildly different from doing anything for 38 years. And you could argue that um, I suffer from some sort of a professional ADD, but yes, I <laughs> very blessed to, to do a lot of different things and um, even venture out into areas that are quite unknown to me. But I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. And um, I did see myself as somebody who was, you know, going to be in some level of leadership position. I, I did want to, I guess, um, if I drew it up as a, you know, 14, 15 year old, I was going to run a small company, a company that was highly engaged in the local community and an extension of the community, you know, sponsored little league teams and really um, played a part in the lives of their employees. And I guess that kind of scenario. But uh, when I graduated from college and I was a mechanical engineer from the University of Washington, my senior project was a, a knee brace for athletics, specifically for UW Lyman. And this is 1983. So this is before Lyman wore such a thing. And um, before there was a market for, um, athletic knee braces, I guess, in general, we worked really closely with the, the team, the team's doctor, Dr. Steve Bramwell. And we created, I, I apparently a, a pretty good idea. Um, we fitted all the linemen and, uh, there was a, just a lot of, um, pressure put on me to, to make it a business. 
But in those days, and I guess with just my level of readiness, I felt like I knew a fraction of what I should know to go start a company. And I felt like I needed to go out and have a work experience, you know, come back and get an MBA or, you know, leverage what I learned about the real world, which I knew nothing uh, before I was in any position to start a company. So I graduated and um, wound up at Hewlett Packard, which was at that time widely respected as one of the best run companies in the world. And I got there and I traded my University of Washington student number 79320008 for <laughs> another number, which I can't even remember that identified me as a corporate citizen of a 140,000 employee Hewlett Packard. And while was my that HP, was that HP in Washington state or was that? It was the local, a local sales office here in Bellevue, Washington. Um, they had regions. So I was technically part of the Neely sales region, a node to a, a gentleman who was one of their original salespeople. And, uh, I was a cog in a big machine and it didn't work for me at all. So I, I think until I got into the workforce, did I recognize that I had to go do my own thing and create something that I had just more degrees of control over more degrees of engagement in, and just, I, I, I wanted to be more immersive in Hewlett Packard's business than that ever would allow a, a sales guy from the Northwest to take that role. So, um, that was the day I decided I need to go do my own thing and, um, quickly went in a different trajectory. Let's talk about a few of the startups that come to mind. Um, you know, I know you've done a lot of startups with successful exits, but maybe you could tell us also, what are some of the keys to success as you kind of look to build these companies and, and, and build this, this team? Tell us a little bit about the keys to success. Wow. Um, <clears throat> that puts me in a position of having some uh, command over um, success, which I've never attained. And I don't know that anybody ever will. Mm -hmm. All of us are constantly humbled. I've, I've been involved in founding 23 different companies and that doesn't imply necessarily a, a primary role in coming up with the idea or, you know, generating some, you know, genius concept. It's sometimes just a big collaborative effort between um, colleagues where I take um, either a non-operational or operational role. It's been a lot of fun. It's been in a lot of different areas. I guess um, the one thing I'd have to say though, it may disappoint a lot of people and, and put a bit of a stick in the spokes of the American dream is that my best efforts, my best work has never correlated to financial outcomes. Yeah. And I think it's important to define what successes are. Um, I've learned more from failures by far. I think anybody that's uh, played sports can identify with the notion of being on a losing team and trying harder and looking just more intensely at what you're doing every day and how you're going about your, your preparation and your execution and trying to figure out why you're not winning and, and working harder to win. And I think that's a valuable experience. So that's a longer version of, you know, failures, a down payment on success, but it's true. Um, I'll tell you a, a couple scenarios. I, um, my first company I started where the weight was on my shoulders to raise the money, build the team, um, create a board and a set of backers. Uh, 
we were very successful by the industry standards early on. We made all the top lists, you know, one of the hottest startups. Our customer list was incredibly strong and um, it appeared to just have no um, limits. Uh, we had created a, this is a, let's see, we started this in 96, uh, 97 timeframe. And we um, were fully adopting the, the power that the internet had brought to communications. And the company was called Two-Way. And it uh, enabled you to develop a communicating, um, let's just call it an object of media. So it could be a survey, it could be a quick quiz, it could be an interactive mm -hmm. website, but you, you could literally drop and drag all these interactive elements onto a page and then just hit publish and it turned it into a active web page. And you could send that uh, via email. And um, that was really all available at the time. And anybody could interact with it. And then everything got stored in a database and reported back to you. So from one to many to many to one. Um, and that was the two-way communications we enabled. It was literally groundbreaking tech, whether it succeeds or not. Um, it did usher in a a statement about what you can do with the new capabilities of the internet, communications, interactive media, hypertext, um, linking all that to a database reporting. So a lot of people used it for surveys, customer feedback, enterprise feedback, keeping track of employees' thoughts and wishes and desires. Um, so the first 10 customers we sold it to probably used it for eight different applications, which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, um, it wasn't a single solution to a single problem. It was a, more like a Swiss army knife. In any way, the company developed and evolved and we came across a board schism where the direction of the company, uh, was being, um, pressured by the board to go in a certain direction, um, simplifying us and turning us into kind of a survey company. Myself, our lead technical people, all the people that had spent so much time innovating really disagreed with that whole direction. And, um, we, we created a full on schism between the board and typically management teams don't win in those scenarios. Uh, the board has lots of leverage and this is a whole nother subject for young entrepreneurs. And that's, um, really how you, um, create supportive boards, manage them and communicate to them. But the long story is I put a lot of time and energy into that and it was worth a lot of value. Um, or so I was told during the bubble. So now we're in 2000 and the company's worth a lot of money. And so we go to sell it. Well, um, if you recall what happened in 2000, April of 2000, um, the wheels came off the wagon in terms of high tech. And that was probably one of the biggest bubble bursts that I've ever experienced. Um, and 18 months later, it was clear that, um, everything had pretty much dried up in terms of funding exits, everything else. So that company ended up getting sold, not um, anything uh, much better than um, what you do in a, a well-managed portfolio for the investors. They did get their money back in some return, but it was largely categorized as a failure. I considered it a terrible failure. Mm -hmm. um, I was literally devastated about the exit because what we thought we had created in, in value what we thought we had created in terms of a meaningful application. Long story short, um, it devastated and, and affected me in ways that kind of, um, 
directed my next two or three years of, of efforts. Um, a lot of it to overcome that failure. Well, I'd say maybe six or seven years ago, I came to the realization that that company was still running. It was, it still had those great customers. It had not gotten much bigger, gotten probably a little smaller, um, but employs dozens of people, including my best friend from college, who uh, hmm. his wife's always also worked there for 25 years. They wow. put three kids through college. They live in Punta Gorda, Florida. They have a sailboat in their backyard. They um, trickle out of a canal and get into the Caribbean, and sail south and enjoy life. And um, so I guess, you know, when you get caught up in um, venture capital returns and you're clinking glasses at Christmas cocktail parties, bragging about, you know, the, the value created, it's easy to call something like that a complete failure. But that is a business that at least stood the test of time, solved problems for a lot of big companies and has employed dozens of people for 25 years. So it's, it's kind of perspective. And I'd certainly um, still trying to figure out how I feel about that company, but it certainly didn't reach its potential. That's for sure. Well, wow. that, that's a lot there. Yeah. And I think, uh, gosh, it maybe all started with maybe the misalignment with, with the board, but it sounds like you had so many great key lessons from that and, and walked away uh, with some great learnings. Big, big lesson and a separate podcast, I imagine, in terms of board management, but we knew we were sideways the very first board meeting where they invested in a business and we were building a different business. Uh, we were young, aspirational. Uh, we were shooting high. Um, that would be more accepted today. But in 1997, um, there's much more of, of a conservative layer on venture capital, especially in the Seattle area. And they were looking for something they could understand. <laughs> Think about the many mm -hmm. great unicorns have created there. The unicorns before the mainstream really even understands what they do <laughs> and mm -hmm. how they work and what their business model. I'm, I'm really entertained when Congress is grilling Facebook and they don't understand their business even to this day and, and fundamentally how it works. <laughs> um, trying to understand their, their control and monopoly and um, sway over our culture. Um, and, you know, fake news and everything else. It's, it's amazing how fast these companies are built on trends and connections with customers that, um, many of the mainstream business community doesn't understand until they're well on their way. And this was kind of one of those, cause it was pretty breakthrough technology and to understand how it could, um, supplant or enhance email and other forms of communication was not well understood long before we had social medias. Let's switch gears now, David. Let's talk a little bit about assembling your team. Like when you start a company, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit from you on how you assemble top talent and how you also form that board and executive leadership. So any lessons there? Yeah. So this is, you know, we're doing this today. I'm actively involved in assembling a senior team for um, my current startups. And um, you never get uh, unpracticed at this, if you stay at this game and you're constantly looking for people because capital, while some people have trouble raising money and it can be a, a, looked at as a mysterious art is freely available and there's plenty of it. That's just true. There there's right now we talk about the amount of built up capital plans are easy to make and you can execute them 
very quickly and you can change them very quickly, but people is what drives these successes. So understanding that, I'll go back to my first startup where I had enough business experience. I had enough exposure to the business community in Seattle, but I felt like I knew who were the best VPs of sales, VPs of marketing, head of HRs. And I assembled that dream team and I was pretty excited. And I, key, I, I can keenly remember patting myself on the back. You know, I've got the best of the best at every level. This team showed well, investors believed it showed well on paper. They all came from rich, relevant experiences. They were young enough to have something to prove, old enough to have really great, relevant experience. And it didn't work. <laughs> they didn't get along. <laughs> my, one of my favorite human beings on the planet, my, my VP of sales, was at odds with marketing all the time. <laughs> he just couldn't oh, no. understand it. I'd put him in conference rooms and, you know, kind of give some version of the, hey, can't we all get along speech? And you guys are all so talented if you could just work together. <laughs> but, you know, what I was doing was that general manager at that, you know, head of basketball operations that figures if he gets the seven best players, he's going to win the championship. And it just doesn't work that way. You roll off the ball and they all fight. You know, they want more of it. They want more passes, more playing time, less defense, whatever. It's, it's just chemistry. Well, how do you do that? How do you assemble a team that you know has chemistry? Right? Well, like you can, you can get all the VIPs, but how, how do you test team chemistry before making those team decisions? It's, it's a, a, a process of allowing them to get to know each other before you, you know, pull a trigger on a hire. You know, we, we now go through interview processes that allow us to better understand that human being. I don't even want to see a resume anymore. Um, you know, I'll look at their LinkedIn profile and see what they've done and where they've been. But I know it's all about how they're going to, you know, integrate and get along and be effective with our team. I, I do have something called um, the five P's and it's a, it's a cultural statement. Um, it's about profit, people, passion, performance, leadership, and perspective. And those are all, those all expand into important attributes, but uh, real quickly, you know, I test our team members for understanding that, you know, we're here to make a profit. That's what gives a business a right to exist. Um, these stories that are created sometimes can go quite long before the cover gets pulled off them and there's just no business there. We, we see that in business all the time, but you're always going to be great in great position and great shape if you have a business that knows how it's going to generate a profit, that's going to deliver something of much more value than what it costs to deliver. People is what drives this um, process of creating a great company. And they can't come in and put all their issues and problems on a coat rack, sit down and become a great corporate citizen. You have to meet them where they're at. Performance, leadership is really about excellence and being great at your job. But back to a shallow sports analogy, making everybody else better. So now I interview for, are you willing to make all your colleagues better? Are you the person that's going to come in and modify your role such that it works better for your internal customers, your colleagues? And so when somebody comes to me with a problem, you know, my first response is, how are you going to make them better? 
And so that's the thing that's risen to the top in terms of a filter for the type of person I want, especially at a senior leadership role, because they establish that standard for everybody else. So if they are actively not complaining about somebody's shortcomings, but helping them fix it and covering for it, because we all have weaknesses and strengths. So it's our job to cover for our colleagues' weaknesses. There's plenty of things I am terrible at. And as long as I'm aware of that, and I hire to that, I'm in a lot better shape. So, and then we get to perspective where, you know, I've done this for over almost 40 years now, and you have to have a perspective. Um, startups will eat you up. They'll eat you up your hobbies, your friendships, time with family, um, any kind of a personal time that you might want to structure. Um, they can just gobble up your time and your your attention, your passion, your, you know, what you spend stress on even um, gets dominated by the startup. So we, we're not defined by our roles. We're not defined by how successful our startup is. We're not defined by how cool our idea is. You know, we're, you're, we're humans with friends and hobbies and personal interests and some definition of quality life that includes things beyond the startup. And so that's how we try and build cultures and hire people that believe in that and agree to that. If you have people that don't agree with all those, you know, five P's, then you're out of alignment right there. And um, it's true to extend those to the board, of course, as well. We want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor. The Level Up podcast is sponsored by Opt Real Estate. Wherever you are in America, finding the best real estate agent can be like finding a needle in a haystack. That's why the team at Opt Real Estate has built a nationwide network of the best real estate professionals in each part of the country. And they did it the old fashioned way by traveling, compiling market stats, and getting to know agents in all 50 states. Call today to be placed with one of America's best agents. They can be reached at 503-908-4908, or they can be reached at theopt.com. Let's talk about, so you've got the idea, you've assembled the team, um, at what point does it make sense to go after raising money? And when do you think it's appropriate to start pitching for that? Yeah, a lot's changed there too since I started. We didn't have venture capital in Seattle. We had some private individuals that had a, a, a personal interest in helping tech. Um, but they weren't organized. They weren't formal. Um, we certainly didn't have any of the Bay Area um, people operating up in Seattle. So um, we went to our customers and that's the way companies used to be started. You'd go to your customer, you'd find a problem, you'd fix it and they'd pay you to fix it. And you could fund a very early stage car, uh, startup with a couple of key lighthouse customers. And we've gotten away from that. Um, the scale that these startups need to reach, the time in which they need to reach them to you know, create attractive internal rates of return and um, the exit, you know, the, the exit expectations. If, if, if you're dealing with um, some of the top venture capitalists, they expect billion dollar exits now. 
So you have to build a business that can scale to that. And that's caused everybody to create a huge dependency on venture capital and outside funding. So my first thing I would tell you, and, and this actually came from when I worked at Bessemer Ventures. I, I haven't looked how big venture. It was 26 billion when I worked there. Uh, assets under management. <laughs> Certainly one of the largest in the world. And they've only gotten larger with some recent exits I've noted. But they used to tell entrepreneurs, and I love this, and they, they have a couple things that differentiate them that I like. One is their um, unportfolio, I think they call it, or something like that. It's all the things they passed on. Admitting that they didn't get it, they didn't understand, they didn't see the value. And they're very upfront about, you know, we're pretty stupid at times. We miss pretty obvious, great ideas. And here's a list. And I think that's self-effacing and, you know, very humble. And I always appreciate that. But another thing they like to tell entrepreneurs is if, look, if you don't need our money, please don't take it. Try and do this another way. They think they're the good guys. And I think they are. They're a very solid, reputable, you know, venture firm that believes in entrepreneurs. But you know, they know they come with strings attached. Um, like we just mentioned, huge exits. They have to put a lot of capital to work. You have to be able to scale and you have to be scaling quickly. If you have any interest in starting a business as an entrepreneur, but maintaining your control and a quality of life, venture may not be a good avenue for you. <laughs> and I think that's the first thing you have to be honest with yourself about. I mean, are you ready to stand up to the rigors and the pressures? Are you ready to grip the steering wheel tight every night when you drive home from work with the added stress of having a big exit and um, getting there quicker, um, which are the expectations which will be laid on you. Um, the next thing to think about about raising money is it's a refining process that's very valuable to you and your company. And if you look at it as a necessary evil, as a laborious, you know, offensive, hurtful, <laughs> dehumanizing process, all of which it can feel like, then you're not going to go into it very well. And you're probably not going to do very well, um, in your process. So, um, look at it as a process where every meeting you have with venture is a chance to have a smart guy, a smart woman, fillet your business, interrogate it audit it and give you invaluable feedback. Now, obviously the trick is, you know, whose feedback do you believe? And the balance of listening to wise people that have seen things and ignoring them, knowing in your heart, you've got the right idea and you can make it work. And that's, that's a calculus nobody can help you with. Um, but I have learned a lot through the process of sharing my business plan with investors and having them interrogate it and being critical on it. And I've come back and said, yeah, I had a blind spot there. That really isn't, um, that needs to be fixed. That, that needs to be reviewed. That needs to be rethought. So look at it as a way to add value to your business um, and embrace it in that manner. Um, the next thing is, you know, you're, you're going to hear a lot of no's. Um, I've had ideas that got funded right away and frankly, they probably shouldn't have been. Um, I've had ideas that I felt should have been funded right away, but timing, um, in the markets or what have you, um, there just wasn't the level of interest I anticipated. I think the next thing is, um, to really target when you fundraise, 
um, certain firms have certain affinities to certain spaces, business models, monetization schemes, and you need to do your homework first. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time calling on a VC that really doesn't like your space or doesn't like your model or doesn't believe in the way you monetize it. Um, those are not productive and they're just causing you not to be in front of somebody who would fund your business. Um, so I think you really need to target, do a lot of background research on what kind of VCs invest in your space, if they like your business model and who that partner is in that firm that would especially lead that charge. So you're doing the targeting first and not wasting a lot of time talking to the wrong investors. Um, there's a lot of investors out there and that's tough, but there's tools now where you can figure out what they invest in and how they invest and make sure it's a good match for your company. Would you say more often than not, you would be prospecting the VC or is it typically the VC that prospects the startup or both? Yeah. <clears throat> you, you never want to be in the position of, I need money and I'm talking to you. Um, this is an interesting dance, but um, you want to be evangelizing the investment community because you're on a constant search for the right people to partner with to accelerate your success. And so it's ideal if you're talking to them before you need the money. Um, now, certainly if you're just starting out um, and you don't have personal funds or family friends uh, funds, then you're going to have to go raise money. But in an ideal world, um, the last emotional point you want to be raising money is when you need it. So you always have to be ahead of that game. So you're never hurried. Unfortunately, many VCs, most VCs are smart enough to know if you need it, then they will use that calculus in their leverage. That's their negotiation. They'll stretch you out um, to, you you know, really can't say no to their offer. Um, you want to be always raising money when you absolutely don't need it. So that means you have to get ahead of it and be very proactive about getting in front of uh, venture capital just to get them on your radar, get you on their radar. You know, we think there might be a fit here um, and, and not be in a position where you need the money and you're about to run out because they'll sense that and they'll unfortunately leverage that. Can we talk a little bit about deal terms as well? Like how do you know what percent part with your company when it comes to the raise? Yeah, well, of course, this goes back to the leverage you might have, but there's a pretty good rule of thumb that you're gonna give away 25 to 30%. Um, that would be the most you'd ever wanna give away on a single round. So if you're going into a series A and you wanna raise 5 million bucks, there's a imputed calculator that says you must be you know, looking for a pre-money raise on $15 million valuation. Um, 25% VCs will try and talk you up. Of course, you're going to get situations where they're going to take 40% because they can. But again, that means you're not, you're in a position where you really can't leverage or negotiate. Um, and of course, if you're in a strong position, you've got you know, great growth, you've got great customers, you've got great upside opportunity. It can be much, much less than that. And you can raise money on much more favorable terms. But um, the default expectation of most VCs is still you know, 25% um, equity that you're offering at, at every round. Um, that's a general rule of thumb. Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about your 23rd startup. Let's talk about Plum. Yeah. So, you know, we get to the point in our careers where you want to aim high or for, it's not worth it, you know, go big or go home, I guess. And um, 
real estate's the world's largest asset class. I've been personally interested in it my whole life. I really haven't been a very active or avid equity or Wall Street investor ever in my life. I've been very active in real estate. I've enjoyed buying unimproved properties, building second homes, owning multifamily homes, um, trading those, doing 1031. There's a lot of tax breaks built around property ownership. There's more money created in real estate than any other asset class in the world. So even people that made their money initially in other industries later in their life turned to real estate and, you know, stretch that out into, you know, billionaire, multi-billionaire status. It's, there's a lot of opportunity in, in real estate. So we, we can agree at least it's, you know, the world's largest asset class and, um, it's always suffered from lack of data information. We, we use information about the real estate market a quarter ago, maybe a month ago at best to make decisions today and to understand where the market's going. There's never been any real-time analytics on how the real estate market is performing today. What, what did it do Wednesday that it didn't do Tuesday? That bothered me and I'm thinking it's time in terms of there's data available and there's techniques available to um, ingest that data and use data science methodologies to build real-time models on real estate. Um, we think we can get better at valuing a home, valuing a home if it were to be remodeled before it's remodeled. In other words, predicting the future value of a remodeled home, um, attaching value to individual remodeled projects, and then really using those tools, home valuation, remodel valuation, and applying it across all of America. And now you've got a number of interested parties that care about that analysis, not just Home Depot and Lowe's, but real estate is 20% of our GDP. And it's 40% of household uh, or all spending is, is household related spending. So there's a massive market for somebody who really understands real estate analytics in real time, how markets move, how markets are performing relative to each other, uh, individual projections of homes, whether homes could make more rental income if they were remodeled, whether they could sell for more if they were remodeled, whether that's a positive ROI. All those calculations um, seem to be un, kind of an untapped opportunity. So that's what Splunk's building, a, a real-time home analytics platform. Love that. Yeah. As a homeowner myself, you always want to know what would be the next best dollar spent. Is it the master bath? Is it a like kitchen remodel? It, it's, it's things that I, I certainly wish I'd, I'd have access to, right? Is knowing yeah. what the next best dollar spent is, especially if you're looking to resell in the next few years. Yeah. And to be clear, that advice is out there. It's just too general. So there's, you know, you can read advice every day, whether it comes from you know, one of your favorite online sites or some, you know, home magazine, generally it's a good idea to update your primary bedroom and your primary bathroom and your kitchen. Well, you know, then you go to the next level and they say, wow, a kitchen remodel could uh, run you 20,000 or 120,000. Well, that's not very helpful. So, <laughs> you know, you've got an idea of what you'd like to do your kitchen, show us a picture. And we'll take that picture, we'll analyze it, and we'll tell you what it's going to cost and how much it'll improve the value of your home. That's simple. And we have that tech now. 
So how many years are, are you into Plunk and, and where are you kind of at right now with, with the team and what's the, where do you see Plunk in, in two to three years from now? Yeah. So, you know, in startup lingo, there's multiple answers to that question. There's the real answer. And then there's the answer that equates to when you formed it, when you raised your first seed money and when anybody knew anything about you doing this and <laughs> they're about a year <laughs> apart now. So <laughs> we formed this company, um, yeah, officially and legally in April of 2020. So um, it looks like it's a two-year-old company. Obviously, I was doing uh, quite a bit of work, not just research, but we had actually embarked on uh, developing some some modeling, some data science, um, trial and error. Um, we were we had a, a separate office space we were going to every day three years ago. So in fact, we've been at this three years. Uh, legally, it shows we've only been at it a couple years. We've been building a, a data moat, a data lake. Those are two different things. One is a big repository of data. The other one is a defensible <laughs> protectionary um, competitive barrier uh, that other people can't get um, to where we're at right now. I don't, you know, to the degree we've done that, we'll see. But um, what we've curated in terms of data on 104 million homes is pretty impressive. I don't know if anybody else that's gotten there. We now have 841 million images of homes. I don't know if anybody has anywhere near that. They're high res. We can analyze them. We can reanalyze them. We can continue to take more information off of those photos as we get smarter. Right now, we can tell uh, condition grade, finish quality, surfaces. We can't tell the difference between different types of stone, but we can certainly tell you when you've got granite countertops or, you know, travertine uh, floors, um, carpet, hardwood tiles, cabinet qualities. Uh, we can see features like pot racks and skylights and sunrooms, high ceilings. Um, there's plenty of things we cannot capture yet that we're still working on. That's going to be a rapid area of innovation, but we take all that data and we correlate it to price. So we can give you a value for a certain type of fireplace in Seattle, which of course would be very different if that same fireplace was in Phoenix um, and the reverse for a swimming pool and many other features. So we, we test these models and we train them by zip code so that they're local and relevant to each market area. And then we apply them to each home. We run a, a specific model on every home in America to understand its value and how it's changing in real time. So we can even display the changing value of a home in real time, just like a stock ticker. Gotcha. That's incredible. But we can also predict its remodeled value and give you specific uh, ROIs for renovation projects. So there's a lot of people, as you can imagine, that are interested in that. Um, to do that on a national scale takes quite a bit of work. Um, not just technical data science work, but literally business development, trying to negotiate those agreements, getting access is um, to images is very difficult for years. They were not considered valuable IP. So some of the people that collected them, whether they were photographers that took pictures of homes or realtors, the multiple listing services, many of them deleted them because they took up too much storage room or dumped them down to thumbnails. And so that's changed now, but, um, it's hard to get all those images. So we're using multiple strategies to collect those images and aggregate them. But, you know, whether we're talking to an insurance company, a lender, a realtor broker, um, a, a contracting network, a home services company, our, our data can 
really help them target and grow their business more uh, efficiently. Well, it sounds amazing, and I cannot wait to see what what you do with with Plunk, and certainly rooting you on. Let's switch gears. We've talked about you know raising money. We've talked about assembling a great team. Let's talk a little bit about just overall career advice, especially for those that are aspiring entrepreneurs. Yeah, you you asked a question about keys to success earlier, and I I kind of balked it like, wow, um, you know, if you have them for one business and you apply them to the next one, guess what? It, it just doesn't work. We've seen some big flameouts. <clears throat> I I started a company called Go TV in uh, Los Angeles in two thousand four. We got to about ten million dollars before YouTube was introduced, which made video from the the phone, a free service. And you could watch, I don't know, cat videos or snakes eating alligators or whatever it was. And it kind of put a damper on people's ability to pay for subscription video on their phone. We developed sports channels and music channels like MTV for every, you know, type of, of music and, uh, fascinating. Cause you know, we had, we, we built 3000 shows a week. Literally wow. produced 3,000 shows. Now they're all five minutes long, you know, maybe three minutes, maybe seven minutes, but they were all very short. We had green rooms for uh, rap music. We had um, people coming in, alt rock, country rock, classic rock. Um, and we thought we were the future of television as uh, consumed from a mobile phone. <laughs> well, uh, we ended up selling the company to a company called Funware. It still licenses um, much of that content and has built some other channels, I've noted. And they um, use it as a kind of a corporate media channel and such. Um, but if you remember, Quibi just came out and failed, raised $2 billion, returned most of the money to the investors after they had just a um, tremendously public launch. This is Katzenberg and Meg Whitman and some of the brightest minds in Hollywood and the brightest minds in tech. And they lost, you know, $450 million pretty quickly and substantially on this exact same business idea of GoTV. So they're very successful people. I thought we were pretty smart, but, you know, saying somebody has learned the keys to success is um, only a temporary, temporary wisdom that, and it really doesn't apply to the, the next thing. Um, you have to relearn it. I, I know a couple of times I've sat down with my board and said, you know, the first thing I had to do to, to get prepared to grow this business is to unlearn everything I knew from my last business. Because <laughs> if you look at video games, you know, they started out as premium, you pay, you buy, you consume, you wait for another game, you buy it. And now it's free to play and it's on mobile. And it's social and it's, uh, you know, 1% of the you know, entire playership pays and 99% play free. And all those are so different dynamics that you, you can't use what you knew in the eighties or nineties, or even early two thousands to build a gaming company today, different keys to success, different talent you have to hire, different business model, different monetization. So I don't know how it can be much more different. So I think the keys to success are a our moving set of, of learnings. Um, that's the first thing. I think um, entrepreneurs have to be honest with themselves about starting with the end in mind. You know, how do you want this to end up? If it's a quality of life business, like I say, don't go get venture capital. Get money or, or um, sources of funding that match 
your desire to turn it into a quality of life business that, you know, um, doesn't take on the high growth, high exit expectations. Um, I think you also have to be honest with, are you willing to pay a price? And I think this has to be negotiated between you and your family, I guess you and your hobbies and your friends, but these can gobble you up. So I think you have to sit down and say, what am I willing to sacrifice to be an entrepreneur? And that goes in hand in hand with the exit. You know, if it's a quality of life, you can control the amount of time you can spend and reserve for your family and your friends and your hobbies. But there are certain types of startups that will consume all of that. And every ounce of energy will go into the startups. You have to be honest about that. Um, and then lastly, I think, and this is against all conventional wisdom, um, really two things, I guess. If you're in it for the money, you're going to burn out. Even if you succeed and you get the money, you'll, everything else will be collateral damage in your life. You got to do this for the journey, the adventure, the people you work with and what you're working on. This is a road that goes someplace bigger than all of you. And if you believe that, then everybody will, you know, you'll get a multiple of all of your people, not a fraction, because they all believe the road goes someplace special. It's adding a specific value to the human condition. Um, you know, at Plunk, we were very front to say, we have to shine a light on affordable housing. We have to identify how bad the problem is and identify whether we're fixing it every day. If we can do all the things we just, you know, illuminated that we think Plunk can do to help investors and homeowners and lenders and insurance companies, then we also have to help those people that can't afford a home. And we got to find policies that help shrink the affordable housing gap. And the starts by putting analytics on it and showing how bad the problem is and then measuring whether it's getting better or worse. So we, we just um, have a metric we can all point to. And that's one of our, one of Plunk's goals. So I would think any company, and this is not a social impact speech, but I think it's pretty clear that most of the business community clearly buys into the fact that a corporation is a community citizen itself and has to take that role seriously. Um, so I think you have to understand that you're on a journey. Um, you've got to figure out how that company ties to, you know, improving, um, not just making money, but doing it in a way that um, elevates people, elevates communities, elevates citizens in those communities. And I would encourage everybody to do that because one, you know, you're going to be more empowered and passionate about what you do every day. And so will all your people. So, David, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for you know, sharing your story and, and your transparency into your businesses and your learnings. And what shines through to me is your, your humility and your ability to reinvent yourself, whether it be an idea or uh, the company that, that you start. So thank you for sharing that. I know a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs will, will love to hear your learnings. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I've enjoyed a, a long relationship with you and watching you do the very, very much the exact same thing in your career. So it's, it's a pleasure to, to watch you to express yourself in tech and industry. Um, so thank you, John. That's it for this episode of Level Up. I hope you enjoyed listening. I'm your host, John Robinson. If you could leave a rating and review for the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. And always feel free to connect with me on Instagram at Level Up the Podcast. 
You can hear more Level Up by subscribing to Apple Podcasts or Spotify.